Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast, Season 2, Episode 1. Today I'm speaking with the food historian, Sarah Wasper-Johnson. I've really had a great time doing this podcast from the beginning, and being in the second season is a thrill to me because I've been able to do 10 wonderful interviews with people that I really enjoy talking to. And getting to talk to some of the authors that I really respect and admire is such a thrill. Talking with Sarah Wasberg Johnson today is so wonderful, and I'm just over the moon to get a chance to talk to her. I know you've probably seen her on television, and you've seen her articles online. She's one of the foremost food historians in the United States, and uh, she knows what she's talking about. She really does have the pulse of uh, food history in the United States, and it was such a learning experience getting to talk to her. I mean, you could bring up any topic and she could expound upon it at length, and it's wonderful to hear her do so. So without further ado, I want to take you to the interview with Sarah Wasberg Johnson, the food historian. I know that you're going to enjoy it as much as I had recording it. So here you go. Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian. Today, I'm talking to Sarah Wasberg Johnson, who is also known as the food historian. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. And uh, I'm very happy to have you. Thank you for um, coming to the podcast today. We were talking uh, briefly about uh, uh, savory gelatins <laughs> and uh, gelatins of all sorts. So that was kind of fun. Um, now you're from Wisconsin, am I correct? No, I'm actually originally from North Dakota, Fargo. Do you have any regional specialties there that are um, different from the rest of the country? Oh gosh, well, um, the area that I grew up in, the Red River Valley, has a lot of Scandinavians, and I am 100% Scandinavian, so we grew up with, um, you know, like Rumagut and Lassa and Swedish rice pudding and, and all the Christmas desserts, um, all the different cookies and things that, that come out of Scandinavia, so definitely grew up with that. But in uh, more eastern central North Dakota, which is where my mom's family is from. Um, there are actually a lot of Germans from Russia, which is a very unique ethnic group with some very unique food ways. So I also grew up with things like Fleischkiekle and Nefla and Kuchen and all of these things that, that come from that immigrant group as well. So Nice. That sounds wonderful. I, uh, I've heard of all these things. I've never had most of them and I'm hoping one day to be able to try them. The one thing I always hear about, and I'm of the opinion, like it can't be that bad because people would need it if it was, but I'm always hearing about lutefisk and people have tall tails and eggs. So is it as bad as people say, or is it, are they exaggerating? So I can happily say that I've actually never had lutefisk, <laughs> but I've smelled it. Yeah, <laughs> and it's, it's really a poverty food. Like people in modern Norway, usually do not eat lutefisk. It's associated with poverty and deprivation. Um, but in the United States, it's become sort of this, you know, ethnic food that people hold on to as a way to preserve their ethnic heritage through food. Um, it's dried cod, air dried cod, which ironically throughout, you know, dried cod throughout the medieval period in Europe was very popular because of Catholicism. Um, and ironically, Basque fishermen were fishing the Atlantic cod banks off of the coast of North America long before uh, many European immigrants came 
came to North America. So uh, Norwegians and Swedes and Danish people have pretty strong fish eating traditions. Um, so the dried cod kind of fits into that, but it's reconstituted in lye, a lye mixture, which basically reconstitutes the dried fish to the same texture as fresh fish, which is this really interesting chemical reaction that occurs. Oh, um, but the, it's got kind of an interesting flavor. Most people just use it as a vehicle for melted butter in the United States. <laughs> um, the other very common fish dish in Scandinavian culture from the Swedish side is pickled herring. Oh, I, I love also, pickled herring. Yeah, I like that. I'm also not a huge fan. So. Oh, see, I like it. I, I didn't grow I did up with it. I did not eat a lot of seafood growing up, so. Yeah, I weirdly like uh, salt cod. I had that later in life, and I was like, where has this been all my life? So I, not a lot of it in San Diego, but. <laughs> yeah, so another really Norwegian thing is codfish balls. Oh, yeah, that'd be like great. cream sauce. Um, and so, like, in the 19th century, canned codfish balls were, like, a thing. Oh, uh, yikes. So, <laughs> yeah. It's fine. I'm um, Scottish and I got to try uh, haggis and I was very disappointed at how normal it was. It's basically loose meatloaf. And I was just like, okay, this is not exotic at all. <laughs> it's just a sausage. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Nothing. A giant nothing sausage. Yeah. So I want to ask you, how did you get to work in the field of food history and how did you get to be known as the food historian? So um, it's an interesting question. I've always been interested in food and I grew up you know on the Great Plains I grew up with like Laura Ingalls Wilder and the American Girl books which both of which have a lot of food descriptions in them um, so oh, yeah. I was kind of interested in it and then uh, in undergrad I got into agricultural history and then in graduate school um, I took a class on rural and agricultural history and I got interested in the country life movement and sort of rural sociology and the progressive movement. And then I did my master's thesis um, on a scrapbook that I found at a local museum that I used to work at because that's my field. Although I call myself a food historian and I am. I am also a museum professional, so that's like my day job. Um, but I found this scrapbook by a group called the Orange County Food Preservation Battalion. And it was a group of, you know, middle and upper middle class white ladies living not too far from where I live who decided during World War One that they were going to open like a canning kitchen into like a canning instruction train and get really involved in food conservation and food preservation efforts during the war. So I wrote my master's thesis on that and then I just got obsessed. There's been very little written about food and uh, the First World War. There's been very little written about um, you know, the domestic front in World War One in the United States in general. Uh, and I just haven't stopped researching since. <laughs> so, and then, you know, I got, I'm interested in general and in food history. And the more I learned, the more I like to share. I started a blog and a website and I started doing some talks and then people started requesting more talks. And yeah, I, start, I collect cookbooks. I don't know if you could see my giant there's like wow. seven shelves in this room. For the people, the for the, yeah, for those of you that can't see it, it's a pretty impressive uh, array of books. Yeah, so I have about seven shelves, and the top shelf is all my food history books, food and agricultural history books. And then the bottom three shelves are all cookbooks ranging from the 1870s to the 1990s, 2000s. So, but I have a huge collection of early 19th century 
sorry, early 20th century cookbooks. But lovely yeah. bookshelves too, they're very gorgeous. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's, you know, I just, I'm the kind of person who I wanna know why things happen in history and what's going on to influence things and the context that's happening around different things. So I, I called myself a food historian um, starting back in 2015 when it was not a super common term. The more common term you would say is culinary historian, but that's really the history of food, like finished dishes and cooking. And I'm more interested in the broader picture of food that includes culinary history, it includes agricultural history, labor history, economic history, the history of technology, the history of women and ethnicity and immigration and slavery and basically anything and everything that touches food in the past is what I'm interested in and kind of these trends over time and why we eat what we eat today and how events and people in the past have influenced that. So it's a huge topic, which is amazing because you can go pretty much in any direction, which is super fun. Um, but it's narrow enough that, you know, you get a feel for, for the history for, I read a lot of old cookbooks, so you can kind of tell just by reading a recipe, what the time period is, what the technology available was, what the assumptions are about people's cooking experience, you know, the ethnicity, the class, all that fun kind of stuff. Um, you just kind of start to get a feel for it because you're immersed in it so much. Well, yeah, and, and so many things over time, we, we no longer use things or things go by the wayside. I know I've read a lot of cookbooks uh, that are older or, or even excerpts from cookbooks and books that talk about the food of the time. And you'll see things that were like, we don't know what it is. Like people will see things like suet being uh, talked about or uh, call fat or isinglass or all these things that were like, we have to look for glossaries or Google it to look it up and see what it is. So yeah, it is an indication of things that may have fallen by the wayside because of um, just technology or things replacing it or things falling out of fashion, right? Yeah, so, you know, pretty much everything you mentioned, um, for those who don't know, suet is beef fat, call fat is, um, gosh, I'm not sure. I think it's from the stomach area. The pancreas, I think. Something like that. Um, Isinglass is a gelatin substitute that comes from fish bladders. You know, all of these things, a lot of it is um, we are very disconnected from meat and the source of our meat and butchering today. Um, and then also we, our health health ideas have changed. You know, like beef fat is, we're like, oh, it's full of cholesterol, it's so unhealthy. And, you know, it's not the same, you know, butter is the is the ideal for most people these days, the ideal fat or olive oil, things like that. So the flavor profile is different, the texture is different. Um, and we don't have to use every part of the animal anymore. There's definitely people who advocate that we should, <laughs> and I think we should too. Um, but our industrial food system has really separated us quite firmly from anything having to do with butchery or 
we don't even like have to have bones in our meat anymore. So much less see the face of the thing that we're eating. So. Now that wasn't always the case though, was it? Because I remember it seems like um, not long ago, like World War II, when we were doing a lot of the rationing and stuff. I, I mean, in fact, I'm reading a book right now that talks about some of the foodstuffs cooked because of rationing. So tongue would have been cooked a lot. Hearts would have been cooked a lot, which are nothing wrong with any of those items. They're all wonderful. I love tongue and I, lo I love heart. But like, I think during the 70s that fell out of fashion and we wanted everything to be like as processed as possible. So like nobody, I think people have fallen out, like nobody saves fat anymore really. Although I do, I save like tallow or I save a, you know, drippings or I save bacon fat. And I think during the war didn't, you people have to save fat a lot because we were sending it all to the front. Yeah, so fat is a, a key component in a lot of explosives. And anytime, anytime the United States has gone to war, you know, from really the first half of the 20th century, World War One and World War Two, um, you know, we weren't necessarily producing on an agricultural level significantly more than we consumed as a country. Nowadays, with the so-called green revolution, you know, we produce way more food than we consume domestically. A lot of our food is exported, um, but that was not the case in the First and Second World War. So you had to consume things that maybe you wouldn't have normally consumed. And part of that was to free up supplies for the allies. Part of it was to free up supplies for our soldiers, you know, our boys on the front. You want them to have the best and the most usually shelf stable food. So things like, you know, high calorie shelf stable food. So, you know, canned meats, lard, um, canned milk, things like that. Uh, what am I thinking of? Um, Refined white flour is very shelf stable. Refined white sugar is very shelf stable. It's ca they're all calorie dense foods, so you're take getting the most calories and least shipping space available. It's a little bit different in World War II. We have um, there's more prevalence of fresh food, particularly on naval ships, and there were a number of na important naval battles in World War II. So at home, there's actually a lot of propaganda posters directed towards people in the military telling them not to waste food because the folks at home are going without so that you can have enough, right? So that's part of the rhetoric there. And then the other thing that's happening in World War II in particular is we're doing a lot of research into vitamins and minerals and nutrition. And there's this realization that, you know, whole grains are actually good for you and vegetables you know, all have all these vitamins and minerals that we need, and organ meats are very mineral rich. Um, so during World War II, in particular, they come out with one of the first um, nutrition guidelines by the federal government. It's called the Basic Seven. And this is the little color wheel divided into seven. Um, butter and uh, fortified margarine are their own category. Um, but then it's you know like red and and orange fruits and vegetables have your uh, vitamin A, usually red, yellow, and orange. So then you have green vegetables. Um, then you have like white starchy vegetables uh, and whole grains and milk, you know, dairy is its own category. 
Uh, meat is its own category, and I, then I think butter and margarine is at seven. I haven't been counting properly. I think it's seven. Um, so that's kind of how the nutrition guidelines were arranged based on sort of the nutritional nutrient content rather than in calories, which is how they tend to be based today. Um, and so you were supposed to eat something from every group every day to maintain good health. Um, and a lot of that had to do not only with just general nutrition, but ensuring that the wartime labor force was in good health, you know, they weren't going to get sick, they had enough energy to work the very long hours sometimes that people are working in factories or in other um, war supporting jobs. Um, and yeah, it's kind of all just this big holistic thing that comes out of this, you know, Defense Department funded uh, investment in in um, vitamin and mineral research. So. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And now let's return to our program. What was your uh, first job as a food historian? Oh, gosh. So, you know, I said food historian is kind of like my side job, right? It's not my full-time job, sadly. Hopefully someday it will be. Um, but I think, you know, one of my first jobs, I guess you could say, was um, library talks. I still do a lot of library talks. I'm in the museum field. I work in interpretation. Uh, I've worked in the past in interpretation, or sorry, in education, and I've done exhibits and stuff like that. So I'm very good with the visuals. I'm very good, as you can probably tell, it's speaking off the cuff. <laughs> and so that translates really well into into lectures and talks and um, this past year during the pandemic, you know, in the past I would do, you know, five or maybe 10 talks a year. And last year I did like 20. Oh my God. <laughs> this year I think I've already done like 20 and I oh still God. have them all. So, you know, it's food history is a super popular topic. And it's, you know, one of the reasons why I like studying it so much is because it's very easy to relate to. You know, everybody, every human throughout space and time on this planet has had to eat. So regardless of what time period or geographical region or religion or ethnicity you're studying, you can relate to those people through food. You might not always find the food that familiar. Depending, it might seem odd or weird or gross. Um, but you can relate to it because everybody has to eat. Um, and I do try, I, just as an aside, I am a little bit of a stickler for not judging people of the past for their food choices. There's a lot of judginess on the internet about, you know, retro food and food in the past and it drives me crazy because just because people don't eat the way we do today doesn't mean that what they were eating in the past was necessarily bad. It was just reflective of the time and the circumstances. So, do you think they're just not aware of like the fact that you know, 
grocery stores didn't exist maybe because <laughs> because oftentimes i feel like it's like you know they were just eating what was around it wasn't like they could get soy burgers you know yeah i think there's there's a big disconnect today between food and agriculture um like what was i one of my friends shared something and it was like you know, oh, it was, I, I, they went to the farmer's market and they, or they were near a farmer's market, I don't remember. Oh, I remember what it is. Sorry, you can edit all this stuff out. Um, it was uh, Alexis, the black forager, I think, or some, some foraging TikTok that I follow was talking about how they were outside of a store and they were foraging berries. And this woman came up to them and was like, what are you doing? She was like, I'm foraging berries. And the woman's like, that's disgusting. You're eating food from outside? That's so unsanitary. Oh my God. And then so she was like, well, where do you get your food? And the woman's like, the grocery store, obviously. And she was like, where do you think the grocery store gets their food? And the woman just kind of looked at her and she was like, you know, pretty much all of our food is grown outside, right? Like, you know that that's the <laughs> So I think there is, you know, I mean, that's, probably a pretty egregious example but I, yeah everything comes all sanitary all washed all wrapped in plastic for the most part and i think because there's that disconnect in our modern society people who are not insanely interested in food like me and who study it and are obsessed with it they don't know necessarily um and i think because there's that disconnect people don't realize like i was I'm not a vegetarian, but I eat vegetarian and vegan food a lot because it's relatively inexpensive and it's healthy and I enjoy it. I love vegetables. Um, but I was thinking about our industrial food waste, and this is maybe going to be a little much for your listeners, so you could decide on whether or not you want to include it. Um, but people who are like very anti-veal, um, which I am anti-veal the way veal is raised in this country today. It's very inhumane. But veal is a byproduct of the dairy industry. If they're male dairy cows, what do you do with a male dairy cow? You don't need, you only need one. You don't need male dairy cows. So there's no, a 50-50 chance that a, the cow that's born to the pregnant cow, which the cows have to be pregnant for you to get the milk, right? Which not everybody realizes. There's a 50-50 chance that one of the baby calves is gonna be a male cow. And then what do you do with that? Male dairy cows are bred, dairy cows are bred to produce milk, not to produce beef. So it's not gonna be the same quality as a beef cow. So you're not gonna let it get big enough. So you kill it when it's young and that's veal. Now, how we produce veal today is disgusting, but it's a byproduct of the dairy industry, a vegetarian to eat dairy. Like <laughs> that's that's how agriculture works and not a lot of people get that. So it's same funny with that chickens. You it's funny you mentioned that because veal was a topic on last week's uh, podcast and it was argued that it's sustainable. So it's, it's funny the different viewpoints on it. Well, it can be, Yeah, it can be sustainable. How veal is raised now is quite cruel. Most commercial veal, because what they're doing is they want the meat to stay tender. So it's milk fed, but they want the cow to get as big as possible. Right, because then you get more money if it's a bigger cow when you butcher it. So 
it's like instead of just butchering it young you keep these cows on this diet that they're not really developing for like how their bodies are developing they need to start eating grass and you're still feeding them milk so they get like diarrhea and it's awful and they keep them confined so they don't move because when you move your muscles get stronger and you build muscle mass but that toughens the meat yeah yeah right so it's for me it's the way in which veal is raised right. that is inhumane and unethical not necessarily that we are eating baby cows yeah no, i don't have a problem with eating baby cows i have a better problem with suffering baby yeah. cows. No, I, I understand that i um yeah it's funny i don't even think i've seen veal at the store i don't even know if i could buy it if i wanted to <laughs> where do you live I live in a, actually, I live in an area that produces uh, cows. I live outside the Bay Area, so I'm just not sure. No, it, it is available in New York, uh, which is where I live. And I think that is in large part because we still have a very large Italian um, population here. Oh, yeah. And there are a lot of traditional Italian recipes, like veal piccata, and people put veal in, you know, meatball recipes yeah, yeah. And, and meat sauce recipes and things like that so and also new york is a huge dairy producing industry but i think there's more of a history of veal consumption um in new york than maybe areas that were settled later or were settled by non um didn't have as many italian immigrants things like that there's also this weird thing i don't know if you've ever seen reference to city chicken no no never so this is thing that's very popular in the late 19th century because of course until we get commercial chicken production um, where you have these massive chicken and egg laying um, concerns that really starts in the 19-teens and 20s. Uh, so before that, chicken was quite expensive. Um, and you had capons, which are your young roosters, also known as young chickens, or you had stewing hens, right, which are hens that have stopped laying and are yeah. tough, and that's why you have to stew them. That was your chicken. Yeah. Chicken was not ubiquitous like it is now, but it was popular because you know, it's a more refined white meat, right? It's more delicate. So city chicken is veal. Oh, okay. Okay, I got Yeah, it. so a lot of big cities had, you know, we don't really pasteurize milk in the United States on any scale until the 19-teens and 20s. Um, so prior to that, all the milk was raw. And so outside of a lot of major metropolitan areas was all dairy farms. So that they could, it was close to the city and you could ship the milk in um, daily, right? And so you have a lot of dairy farms, you have a lot of veal. Oh, yeah. So veal was cheaper than chicken, right? And it's similar kind of texture, it's similar, it's very pale, veal is very pale color. Um, and pork at that time was still very fatty, it was not, it's not like modern lean pork. So, yeah, city chicken is veal. I, I know that I've read recent articles that they're talking about the out of uh, control consumption of Greek yogurt has led to big lakes of um, what is it called a uh, whey? Yes, it's very acidic. Yes, <laughs> yeah. It's, so it's basically a toxic, a toxic chemical at that point because it's very acidic. So if we had diversified farming, and I'm going to get on my little sustainable agriculture soapbox right now if we had diversified farming historically when you were making um, butter or cheese uh, you would save the whey and mix it with um, oat or wheat bran which is a byproduct of the flour milling industry and you would feed it to your pigs 
Mm -hmm. Right. So you would be taking both of those byproducts, um, mixing them together and making essentially a fairly high protein, um, high fiber diet for pigs, which then you would process into meat and lard, right? So it's kind of a closed loop system, but we don't have that anymore. We have highly specialized agriculture in this country and Greek yogurt in particular, Greek yogurt is just plain yogurt that has had all any additional way strained out of it, right? But it's quite, because it's yogurt, it's quite acidic. So it's difficult um, to use it in anything else. You can use it in bread baking, but again, not probably to the scale that Greek yogurt companies are producing it. The idea of, um, a, the idea of a, la a lake of whey is disgusting. <laughs> I'm sure it doesn't smell very good. Yeah, yeah. And it, because it's, it's Greek yogurt, it is highly acidic and that's why it's, it's a problem environmentally because, um, you know, it can burn plants and affect animals and stuff if it gets into, into waterways. So, yeah. I hope we find something to do with that. That's just disgusting, that waste. I hate food waste myself. So just the idea of that is horrifying. What is, uh, this might be a hard question to ask, but what is some of your uh, most exciting projects that you've worked on as a food historian? So I think some of the most interesting for me um, are the television show interviews. So I was on the History Channel twice. I hope they do a third for the Built America. It's the History Channel, so it's very like pop history, which I usually have no problem with if it's done accurately. <laughs> but it's not always done accurately on the History no. Channel, or not as accurately as historians would like anyway. Um, but that was really fun because, you know, people recognize you, so that's sort of weird as a historian to get recognized by random strangers. Because, um, you know, we're not used to that kind of thing. Uh, but also it's, it was exciting because I think it's really shifted a lot of the conversation around history. Um, I get a lot of media interview requests. Um, there have been, especially during the pandemic, it was like everybody was doing articles about food history, I guess, because people want a distraction from the scary news of the day. I don't know, but um, it's just really heartening for me to see that that so many people are interested in this topic that I'm completely obsessed with and that that people are enjoying it and maybe learning something that they, they didn't know before. So that's been really fun. And then the other project, um, my long-term project that is I have a love-hate relationship with this, my book <laughs> on food in World War One in New York State. Um, it's it's in the editing stages, which anyone who's ever written a book will tell you is like the worst part of writing a book is going back and editing things and cutting things down and rewriting and and tracking down citations that you forgot or can't find or yeah, it's it's been a long slog. I'm hoping to spend some more time on it very soon um, and just finish it because it's not done and that's the part that I hate. But I actually, when I have time to work on it, I really enjoy the actual work, so. Yeah, I've heard that from people that, my friends that are authors, they always say that the, the editing process is longer than the actual writing process, which sounds slightly unfair, but. Uh... It's totally unfair. And it's, you know, fiction writers do this too. And it's the same thing with film. I think people, we consume books and films 
so quickly. It's almost like a metaphor for cooking. You know, you can spend hours and hours cooking a meal and then people eat it in 30 minutes. And it's kind of the same thing with books and films. You spend hours and hours and days and weeks and months and years in many instances to produce this thing that somebody's going to consume in a day or a couple hours. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily know how the sausage is made, which is maybe a good thing. But um, yeah, definitely there's a lot of commiseration among fiction and nonfiction authors about, about editing and writing and finishing dissertations and books and other projects. So, A friend of mine uh, who's a, she writes uh, documentary work, she said, I'm never telling anybody I finished my book again, because the minute you say that on social media, during the entire rewrite time period, everybody's like, are you done yet? Are you done yet? When's it coming out? When's it coming out? So she said, I'm going to keep it in the dark until it's published. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, I, I'm, I've just started saying it's, I'm editing it. I'm editing it. That's, that's my break. And you know, it's not, it's hard as an independent scholar because I work full time and I'm doing all these talks and everything and I'm writing my blog and I'm trying to do my book all at the same time. And as we found out today, I constantly overbook myself. <laughs> <laughs> and and so it's a little bit frustrating. It's, it's in some ways it's easier. It's both easier and harder, I think, for for academic historians who work for you know universities and colleges because they can take um, sabbaticals where they just get paid to write their book and do their research full time. But they usually have a much shorter um, publishing schedule, so there's a lot more pressure to get the book done in a much smaller, shorter period of time. So six and one half doesn't the other. I'm going to ask you, you mentioned the Laura Ingalls Wilder books. And as a child, I love those so much because I always wanted to have the corn cakes with the molasses after I read those. And the, the Almanzo book, especially just reading the ridiculous amounts of food they're eating uh, was just incredible to me. I really love those. When you read books on fiction, especially historical works, and they talk about food, do you ever cringe or do you ever see maybe they're getting it right more often now? Or do you think that writers are taking more uh, pains to be accurate in their depictions of historical food? Or do you think it's still pretty sloppy? I think it depends entirely on the writer. I actually have gotten a number of requests from historical fiction writers over the years, um, including quite recently a sort of famous writer. I'm not gonna say who it was because I don't know if they want me to say, but that was really cool that they, they contacted me. So I think people are trying to be accurate but um every once in a while i'll be reading something i'm like that's not how that would work <laughs> it's not usually too egregious though and i think you know talking about the laura ingles wilder books definitely farmer boy was one of my favorites which ironically takes place in upstate new york so kind of weird that i ended up in the vicinity not totally it's way farther upstate than i am now i'm in the hudson valley um but when you talk about corn cakes and molasses like unsweetened corn cakes and molasses is not very good. <laughs> I know, I can imagine. You know, there's like this this scene, I think it's in, it's either on the banks of Plum Creek or a little, little house on the prairie and their ma is making cornbread and pa always says, you know, like, oh, because she puts her handprint on the top and pa's like, oh, what well, if it has your handprint, I don't need any sweetener, that's sweetener enough. And I'm like, have you ever had plain cornbread with no sugar? It's, I mean, this is a thing in, in um, you know, kind of like a North South thing. Do Yan Yankees put sugar in their cornbread kind of thing? But yeah. 
you know, with, with plain molasses is, it's not that great. I like cornbread with maple syrup personally, not molasses, but yeah. And then there's all the interesting backstories about, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about Laura Goes Wilder now because those books will always have a place in my heart, but they were promoting a very specific, fairly libertarian worldview, which you don't realize when you're a kid, but as an adult, you go back and read them and you're like, you know, they're supposed to be these independent pioneers on the prairie and they are so tied to the railroads. Like Pa never, they never have a successful farm that they can feed themselves 100% from. They're always like, where's the cornmeal coming from? Where's the molasses coming from? Where's the salt pork and flour coming from? It's not coming from their farm. They're buying it from the railroad. And you know, that's the long winter is all about what happens when the railroad shuts down. So it's like this weird, there's this concept around learning with weather that's, you know, pioneers striking out into the frontier and being self-sufficient and the American yeoman farmer that our democracy is built on. It's like, it's not actually what happened. So, there's I, been a, a lot of recent research into Laura Angle's water. If anyone wants to check it out, I recommend it. I, re I remember in the uh, cooking gene, Michael Twitty talked about what corn cakes would be like, what a hoe cake would be like. And it didn't sound, he's like, you think it sounds good? It's, it wasn't good. It was like this hard, basically dried cornmeal, like hockey puck that you had to basically, you know, use all your will to actually eat because it wasn't that great. You know, you only ate it because you were hungry. So it's interesting because um, <laughs> I follow a number of indigenous food historians um, and there's this woman, Chef Tanya Bryant, who's based in Eastern Canada, who's, who has a YouTube channel, she's great. Um, and she did a whole video on processing corn. And essentially what a lot of indigenous hoe cakes and cornbreads are made from is freshly nixtamalized corn. So if you know, if you know masa or or corn tortillas. You can always tell when a restaurant is making their own corn tortillas. Like, it's amazing compared to the shelf-stable ones you buy at the grocery store. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, a totally yeah. different product. And it's the same thing with cornbread. They are nixtamalizing their corn, which white Europeans um, and many African enslaved people did not know to do necessarily, although you do have hominy in the South uh, and hominy grits, which is nixtamalized. So, sorry, nixtamalization is when you, you soak the corn in wood ash. And it not only um, allows you to take the tough outer shell of the dried corn off, so you get to the fluffy, um, starchy part in the center, but it also makes the niacin that is naturally present in the corn available for humans to digest. If you are just grinding up your field corn into flour, cornmeal or corn flour without nixtamalizing it, and you're only eating, you know, you're only eating cornmeal in the winter, you are going to be nice and deficient and you're going to get pellagra, which is a huge problem in the rural south and in Italy yeah. when they're eating polenta. Um, but so it's also a very different texture than, than cornmeal. It's much softer, it's much fluffier. Um, so I think it makes a better cornbread when you're just mixing it with, cooking it with water and salt and then baking it than the, the kind of more gritty harder stuff that that most of us are used to so this is like the nuance that if you don't know a lot about food history you're you're not gonna get that and that's why i think it's so important to study because 
there's all of these little things that maybe we've forgotten or we don't know about that change how the food is prepared historically and how we perceive it in the modern time period. Um, books like um, The Cooking Gene and the recent Netflix uh, series uh, High on the Hog really deal very strongly with uh, food inequality in America uh, from like the times of slavery up till now. And this is kind of unprecedented. We never, we never used to have documentaries like this that talked about this in depth and books would gloss over this, but never talk about it from like a personal perspective. How do you think this is changing food history right now from your perspective? So food history is an interesting um, field of study. It's actually been around for quite a long time. Really, um, it really started to take off as an academic discipline in the 1970s with the you know revival of social history um, and you know getting away from just interpreting what the dead rich white guys did. Um, but even then, it was not really considered a serious academic topic in large part because it was so closely associated with women, right? So people who started studying food in an academic setting in the 1970s and 80s talk about how they were blocked from studying it. Advisors told them it wasn't a serious topic. Um, and that really continued in academia until quite recently. Like I would say the last 20 years, there has started to be a sea change in taking food history seriously. Agricultural history was always taken seriously because who does most of agriculture in the United States? Men, yep. right? Yep, absolutely. And it's an economic benefit, right? It has economies, it has technologies, there's policy about it. Um, so that was always allowed as a serious subject, but it's really since the late 90s, early 2000s that that food history has started to become taken more seriously in academia and you get the rise of food studies programs um, and people interested in, you know, sustainable foodways and sustainable agriculture. Um, but food history, it's really just in the last couple of years, I think that that it's been accepted more in the mainstream, specifically as food history rather than just food studies, which makes me super happy because I'm like, yes, it's this amazing, interesting thing. We should all be studying it. But also because, um, and this is just my personal opinion, I'm sure people will disagree with me, but I think food history has a higher burden of proof than a lot of, you know, food studies, right. which I think tend to be more ambiguous um, and more conjectural, um, depending on the how people are approaching it. But just from what I've read and what I've experienced, um, and I'm totally biased, of course, but I think food history, there's more of a burden of proof um, that I think is lacking from, from some Food, food studies. Like if you're going to make a statement, you kind of have to back it up and not everybody does that. But even within academia, like, and I'm just going on this huge rant now, sorry. Um, oh, it's totally good. There's, there's, a, there's a couple of disconnects. So, and these are disconnects that I, through my work, I'm trying to solve. So I 
am an academically trained historian, but I'm working outside of academia as an independent historian, and I'm also a public historian, which also has gotten kind of poo-pooed by academia a little bit. I work in museums. I, my main goal is to interpret history for the public. And for a lot of academics, although again, this is also changing, thankfully, um, a lot of academics in the past viewed that as like dumbing down history or public historians didn't do their own original research. You're just regurgitating other people's brilliance, you know, that kind of thing. And it's just not true. And if we want history to be relevant, we have to interpret it for a general audience. You have to make ordinary people care about and interested in history or we're not gonna have funding in our schools for history. Our college departments are gonna get cut. People are gonna be uneducated about history. And that is a trend that's been happening for the last 40 or so years that we're now seeing those chickens come home to roost, right? That we've cut civics, we've cut history. People don't know American history like they should. And and it's an issue. So I'm, I'm very glad that that food history is hopefully going to be kind of like the gateway history <laughs> for people yeah, to, very much. to learn about the past. Yeah, because I mean, you read something, you know, thinking you're just going to read about, you know, food and like in history and maybe it'll be quaint or something. And then you're getting like all this truth dropped on you, especially in like the cooking gene, like really was like a wow book. It's one of those books that you remember for the rest of your life. And I feel like um, High on the Hog you know, it's, it's a very, like, at times hard TV show to watch. And it, you know, because it gets you in with like, oh, you know, this is going to be light and fun. And then it's like, it's really like very like genuine. And I, I appreciate it so much because I love seeing people, you learn history through kind of like another means, like indirect means, because it's always, I think, a way to get people that wouldn't normally watch something historically, you know, getting them to watch it or, or read it or listen to it. And, you know, the thing with High on the Hog that I don't think a lot of people realize is that Jessica B. Harris wrote that book in, like, the 90s. It's, it's like a 20-year-old book. Yeah, I remember and, before, yeah. Yeah, and, like, I think now it's, like, on the bestseller list again, which I'm like, yes, great, get those royalties, Jessica B. Harris. Like, people like her really, you know, kind of, paved the way for a lot of historians and you know I'm a white person and I think it is so important to talk about the origins of American food. American food is a creole or it's been creolized as they say it's it's a mixture of indigenous American, European, and West African foodways. And, you know, a lot of the foods that are indigenous American, when I say indigenous American, I don't just mean North American, I mean South American as well. Things like potatoes, right? Things like tomatoes, which are from Central America, things like corn. Um, potatoes did not come to North America through indigenous routes. They came to North America from Europe. So why did they come from Europe? Well, it's because Europeans were invading in many instances and conquering and enslaving in many instances, South America and bringing those foodways back with them to Europe. And then when they colonized North America, they brought them with them. So, you know, it's, 
American food is really in a lot of ways global in ways that a lot of other cuisines in other parts of the country that are incredibly um, dependent on their indigenous food ways and have been in development for hundreds or even thousands of years. That's not the case in the United States for most Americans. Obviously, indigenous Americans do have food ways that go back thousands of years, but most Americans don't. Um, so our food is a product of invasion, genocide, slavery, globalization, greed, technology, you know, this mixing of ethnicities and immigrant cultures. I saw, you know, some meme that was like something about like, oh, you're, you gotta be American. You gotta speak American English. And you know, if you don't like it, go back to where you came from. And I was like, okay, let's talk about American food. Hamburgers and hot dogs are from Germany. French fries are from Belgium. Uh, pie is pretty distinctly American, but from Britain. Uh, pizza is from Italy by way of Central America with tomato, you know, like, and then our language, American English has more foreign language words than any other language on the planet, I think. So we're this product of all of these different cultures and ethnicities, some of whom were brought here in chains, some of whom we tried to eradicate through genocide and failed, thankfully. But, you know, American history and our American food history is so complicated. And I think that scares a lot of people, but it doesn't have to, like, it's okay. Like we can celebrate the contributions of enslaved people. We can celebrate the contributions of indigenous people and recognize that some of those speedways come out of trauma and try to alleviate some of that trauma as best we can. But by not talking about it, we're making it worse. <laughs> so yeah. things like the cooking gene, things like high on the hog, people like Chef Tanya Bryant and Sean Sherman, the sous chef, and I don't know if you saw the film Gather, which came out last year about indigenous food waste in the United States and Canada. That's an astonishing work of film. You should go see that if you haven't. Yeah, I haven't seen that. I want to. I'm going to make a make a point of watching that. Yes, it's amazing. It it follows um, distinct indigenous groups throughout the United States and I think also Canada, trying to reclaim their indigenous food waste, which are incredibly diverse. You know, like, just like Africa is not a country, it's a continent. Indigenous America, Indian country, is not a monolith either. You know, oh, it's yeah. not like Europe is not a monolith. So I think, like I said, I think people are afraid of the complexity, but the complexity is what makes it interesting for me. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think about food a lot and how it's terraformed the United States because we changed so much the United States, the way it was, the way it looked or the way it was you know conceived because we wanted to plant corn across the country right so we cut down trees we had all these big farms we uh killed all the buffalo so we had uh, places for the sheep and the cattle to graze and i mean we it's the food we eat kind of did change the country didn't it in many ways yeah so there's um there's some 
it's a little bit more complicated than that to talk about yeah. complications. So deforestation in the United States was driven largely by uh, the charcoal industry. Oh my God. Believe it or not. Um, which before we discovered, and this is like the crazy deep context stuff that I love to get into. So before we discovered anthracite coal in Pennsylvania, most blacksmith shops and steel and iron production, um, especially iron production, was running on wood-based charcoal. Oh my God. Um, and of course, people are heating their homes with firewood, we're building with wood, we're building ships with wood, right? So that's the primary driver of deforestation, not necessarily agriculture itself. Okay. Um, once we discover uh, reliable sources of hot burning coal, most of our coal prior to the 1790s, 1810s um, was bituminous. This is like, this is what I know at my museum. This is why I know all of this stuff. Uh, Cause we talk about industrial history of my museum. Um, which is a fairly soft burning kind of dirty coal, right? Most of it was coming from Virginia. And then the immediate area around Philadelphia was getting stuff from Pennsylvania. And then we discovered anthracite coal, which was known as rock coal. Cause it doesn't catch fire very easily. And it's very hard. But it, once you get it burning, it burns very hot um, and much cleaner. So you could use that coal to fire things like steamboats and steam engines and trains and steel production, right? So then we don't have to have wood-based charcoal as much, but we've already de deforested most of, most of the Northeast. Yeah, That's actually a very interesting ecological thing is that the Northeast has largely reforested through neglect. So in the 19th century, most of the Northeast would have been totally devoid of trees. And now it's giant forests everywhere. But it's I was because- say, I've been back there and it was very green. Yeah, there's trees everywhere. There's trees everywhere. Um, and it's because of westward expansion, right? People leaving their farms, which they have largely depleted the soils of, particularly in New England, which did not have very rich soils to begin with. Um, so they're abandoning those farms. The people that are staying are farming less and are working more in industrial areas, right? In industrial manufacturing, um, trade, transportation, things like that. So we don't have quite as many people farming. And because we have things like railroads and canals, you have access to Midwestern foodways. So the, the grain producing states stop being New York and Pennsylvania and start being Wisconsin, Minnesota, the Dakotas, Nebraska, Iowa. Um, and that's made possible first by the Erie Canal and the Ohio Canals and later by railroads, right? So yeah, you're right, we are terraforming <laughs> basically the, the continent by our agricultural processes, but they change over time, which is something that not a lot of people realize. And like beef, Americans eat tons, metric tons of beef. Why do we eat so much beef? Beef is pretty expensive to produce, you need a lot of land, for beef uh, in the 19th and early 20th, or sorry, 18th and early 19th century, how did you get beef to market? You walked it there, right? Just like you walked all your livestock, you had cattle drives. Mm -hmm. Well, once we get railroads, particularly refrigerated railroad cars, which is a product of the natural ice industry, which I won't go into, but railroad cars were cooled by ice until the 1940s, which is kind of crazy to think about. But then you get cowboys, right? Post, post uh, Civil War. Where's the term cowboy come from? It's not a cow man, it's a cowboy. Who do we call boy after the Civil War? 
black people, right? It's a lot of freed slaves. It's a lot of former Confederates um, going on cattle drives from Texas, Texas Longhorn cattle up to Kansas City, where they put all those cattle on trains, taken to Chicago to the stockyards and the slaughterhouses and the meatpacking districts. And then from there, you can have beef all over the country. But that's why beef gets to be so popular in the United States is because we have these complicated transportation and technology aids that allow us to specialize in agriculture. And that is a trend that continues through the 19th and 20th centuries that we get increasingly specialized in our agriculture. It's funny how uh, fads and fashions can uh, change uh, the landscape too. Um, I live in the Bay Area and I moved here in the early 90s. And when I moved here, of course, there were a lot of uh, vineyards in Napa County. Now you can't throw a rock in the Bay Area without hitting a vineyard, it seems. Like there's just, we're lousy with grapes. What food trends do you see that have changed things kind of, you know, either for the better or ridiculously? So probably the biggest change in specialization in the United States is the development of the Great Plains as the meat producing states. Um, so for really the first half of the 19th century, the Great Plains, we just ignored the Great Plains, right? That's quote unquote Indian country. They thought it was like this worthless desert, right? There's no trees, there's not a lot of water. Um, and so everybody was just settling on the coast. It's a freaking Oregon Trail, right? Oregon Trailing yourself over the Rockies to get to the coast. Either that or going all the way down around um, the bottom of South America to get to California, right? So we have settlements on the coast in the 1820s, 30s, 40s, particular with the gold rush. But then really in the 18 50s and 60s, you start to have more and more expansion of white Europeans into the Plains states and territories because they're not states yet. Um, and we realize once we plow up the deep rooted tall grass prairie that, hey, this land has been building up topsoil for thousands of years and there's very few rocks, there's no tree stumps that we have to try and pull. If you can get the sod breakers to come with their very sharp, very deep plows and cut through those deep root systems so that it rots and you can plow the land, you have amazing grain growing land. Especially in the Northern Great Plains, there's usually enough rainfall to ensure that you have a good crop. Um, and with that incredibly cheap, accessible wheat, uh, you have a transformation of the American diet in a lot of ways. Refined white flour becomes cheap. So this previous thing that was really only accessible to the very wealthy throughout most of human history, all of a sudden becomes accessible to everybody um, and transforms the American diet. White bread uh, becomes a huge part of the American diet. And interestingly, and this is something where it helps to know agricultural history and cooking in addition to food history. In the South, you have the prevalence of biscuits because Southern wheat is soft, soft wheat. So the low gluten wheat, that's not particularly well suited to bread making, but it is suited to things like cakes and pies, pastry and biscuits. 
so biscuits and cornbread become the primary bread of the South, whereas the North um, risen yeasted bread based on hard winter wheat, right, which is very high in gluten, uh, that becomes the primary carb for Northern states for that reason. Oh, wow. Yeah, these crazy things that you don't think about, but but yeah, they have a big influence on on how and what we eat. I was gonna ask you about food deserts. We've been hearing a lot about food deserts in the recent years. And I'm wondering, was this always the case in America or is this something that's only become prevalent in the United States recently? So a food desert, let's define it, because there are food deserts and there are food swamps, which is a more recent term. A food desert oh, is a place I've where fresh, yeah, where fresh food is not available or is very expensive, um, or you have to travel a very long distance to get to it. So it's really areas where there are not full grocery stores. And people tend to conflate food deserts with urban areas, um, but they are also very present in rural areas throughout the country. Yes. Um, a food swamp is where food is abundant, but terrible for you. So a food swamp would be a place where there were tons of fast food places, tons of convenience stores, tons of liquor stores, and no grocery stores. So that's what's considered a food swamp. Um, and it's really, you know, it has, there's, it's, the reason why we have these places is quite complicated because there's different reasons for rural food deserts and for urban food deserts. Urban food deserts are usually um, a symptom of white flight um, and the kind of hollowing out the donut effect in cities where um, the poor and often uh, minority communities are segregated uh, and the wealthy white families um, move to the suburbs, right? So that's where the grocery stores go. There's also a lot of um, redlining plays a role in grocery stores. So you have lower property values and higher insurance premiums. Um, areas that are considered high crime, I put that in quotes, uh, are less likely to have grocery stores. Um, and there's also this perception that poor people don't spend money, so they don't have grocery stores necessarily. Uh, in rural areas, it's a similar thing. Uh, it's often called the brain drain, which is not a term that I particularly like, but it is when uh, there's not a lot of well-paying jobs. Um, young people move out of the area, often to cities in search of employment. Um, and the people who are left are often elderly or low-skilled um, and are working low-wage jobs. So again, they're poor. It's a low population because a lot of people have moved out of the area, so it's maybe not populous enough to maintain um, a large grocery store. Uh, so people have to travel long distances to access food um, because we have a population drain in rural areas. So those are kind of the factors around why we have food deserts. Um, and it's, it's a little bit different in urban and rural areas. Uh, in rural areas, often there's easier access to land. So if you have the skills and the time, uh, you can 
grow some of your own food. That is a movement that is also happening in a lot of urban areas throughout the 80s and 90s and into the 2000s. There was a massive movement to reclaim vacant lots in urban areas, which now in recent years there have been um, some fights with vacant lot gardeners uh, and the cities who now want to sell their formerly abandoned vacant lots that they leased to these people to clean up and use um, as areas are gentrifying, right? It becomes more difficult to maintain some of those uh, inexpensive gardening spaces for low-income people. But it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of the time it just comes down to money. There are poor people living in urban areas and there are poor people living in rural areas and it's difficult to find well-stocked grocery stores in areas where people don't have a lot of money because there's this perception that uh, there's not gonna be high enough um, turnover of stock probably to justify it, so. Yeah, I, yeah. In I was, I, go ahead. In San Francisco, I noticed it was, there were a lot of resident you know, places, apartment buildings and condos in San Francisco, but oftentimes those people have to travel within the city 45 minutes to get groceries. And it's just crazy that that's the case. Whereas, you know, in a, in a, um, in the suburbs, you know, you don't have to travel that far to get groceries normally. So I live in a somewhat suburban area. I'm outside a small, right outside a small city, um, fairly populous area. And there are nine grocery stores within five miles of my house. And when I say grocery stores, I mean like full big grocery stores. There's specialty grocery stores, there's giant chain grocery stores, there's like a Walmart, there's like a Target with the grocery store. You know, like I have incredible access to food. Most Americans don't. And you asked me about the history part, so I'm going to talk about historically as well. Okay. Um, because I feel like that's an important part of our food history discussion. So in the past, if you had access to land, you were growing your own food. Food production was a huge part of American life for really until the late 19th century, as we started to urbanize, um, people got more and more divorced in urban areas from food production. But like in the 18 teens and 20s, even in cities like Philadelphia and New York, you know, people would be complaining about like pigs running in the street and people right. had milch cows and people had kitchen gardens, even in cities. And that starts to change um, as we industrialize and more toward the Civil War, and particularly after the Civil War, that starts to change. Um, and as we get an influx of poor people into cities, um, they don't even necessarily have access to kitchens, right? If you're living in a tenement building, you might not have a kitchen. Oh my God. So how do you feed yourself, right? You might not even have, you know, like a cook stove. So you get the prevalence of push carts, you get the prevalence of um, delis and saloons that had food. Um, and so people, there's a lot of distress among white progressive reformers in the progressive era about people eating pies of questionable origin, people eating pickles that's terrible for your digestion, all that spicy, acidic food, right, among <laughs> white New England progressives. 
the people eating, you know, pretzels that some lady made in her house. There's all this question about sanitation, right? So ironically, a lot of the investigations into pushcart operators are like, don't reveal any really big surprises, right? It's all pretty decent food. So there's some racism also happening there. Oh yeah. But street food purveyors were also a really big part of American life, particularly for poor and working class people. Um, who, uh, someone, I forget her name, oh my gosh, I need to look it up. There's this woman, Cheney McKnight, who does um, living history interpretation as a black woman. Uh, her, her little company she has is called Our Mammies. And she is actually doing a program coming up about uh, Philadelphia pepper pot stew purveyors in Philadelphia who are largely free black women. And that's how they made their living was they had access to a kitchen, and this is true in a lot of urban areas, if you have access to a kitchen, often you are making food to sell, to support yourself, but also to give food access to your neighbors, right? So um, these street food purveyors, pushcart operators are super common really until the 1920s when a series of sanitation laws, right, kind of start to remove those people um, undesirable, put that in quotation marks, to people from the streets, right? So we don't offend the rich white people, um, which happens today. I don't know if you saw, this is another side. Humans of New York did a little thing about a hot dog cart operator on this, the steps of the Met. And uh, at some point, so New York City had this very old law dating back to the Civil War that if you were a veteran, you could be a food, a street food purveyor without a license. Oh, yeah. And they revoked that in New York City recently. And licenses, depending on where you are in the city for food car operations, can be as, as high as a half a million dollars for a license. My God, that's ridiculous. So, yeah, he was like, I'm just going to do it anyway and come arrest me. <laughs> so, I mean, this is, it's it's become very commercialized. So the, the woman or man who's making this amazing food out of their kitchen you know questions of sanitation aside they're it's a unique product that probably reflects their their ethnic background um that doesn't really exist in a lot of big cities anymore if you go to new york city a lot of the pushcart operators are it's everybody's selling the same cigarette hot dogs or everybody's selling the same gyros you know it's not you don't have that unique local flavor anymore and I don't know, I have mixed feelings about it. I'm a fan of hole in the wall restaurants that are run by like mom and pop and you know, they've been doing the same thing for 40 years or whatever. And it's like, you don't really care what the kitchen looks like. You just want the food to taste good, right? So, but that's as we've commercialized and, and gotten more regulations, which is not a bad thing in a lot of ways. Um, a lot of people have been priced out yeah, we have a lot of gorilla kitchens here in the Bay Area where people will make like pupusas or uh, tamales and sell them out of their 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 house and or they'll come to workplaces and sell them and they're often done in the down low and it's but unfortunately totally. yeah. at some point some jerk will report them and they'll get in trouble. I I I knew somebody who had this happen to them and it was devastating because a lot of people relied on this food. They were like students young people who didn't have, otherwise they'd have to go to some overpriced crappy place. And this is like real food. 
and it only was just this somebody decided to be a jerk and like you know report them and it's just it's horrible to see people have to like people who are doing something positive being demonized when there's no reason for it you know yeah so i am not a libertarian at all but a lot of our modern food regulations are designed for giant corporate operations this is yeah. true of agriculture this is true of food production this is true of restaurants so definitely health and safety regulations are there for a reason right um and an important i think it's an important reason but i think we could be doing a much much better job at making access to food safety education much more accessible for small purveyors i think we could um make the regulations a little more lenient in some ways for small purveyors um, because it is very expensive often to conform to regulations that again are designed for giant operations where they're going to be violating health code because it makes them more money right <laughs> whereas a small person is going to be violating health code probably because they don't know any better right right so you know, I think there could be a lot more support for small businesses and small food businesses because it is a way out of poverty for a lot of people. Um, it's been true food purveying and restaurants and things like that have been a way out of poverty for a lot of free and, you know, formerly enslaved black people right. throughout American history. Um, it was a huge part of the civil rights movement in the United States. Like people would cook out of their kitchens and sell plates in their yards. And that's how they funded the civil rights movement. You know, people, people would have rent parties in the great yeah. depression and sell plates of spaghetti or mac and cheese out of their apartment. And that's how they would raise rent when they were out of work. You know, so I think there's this long tradition of using food in the United States to get a leg up in society and punitive regulations um, are not helpful for for people who are just trying to make a living. Yeah. Um, do you think that the, the changes in the way we perceive food from the pandemic is going to be a benchmark in history? Do you think uh, the way this all happened I know a lot of people started making sourdough and started gardening, at least I did. How do you think that's gonna be remembered in history, do you think? So definitely the pandemic affected people differently based on their socioeconomic status. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit because essential workers still had to go to work um, and restaurant cooks, line cooks um, and kitchen workers in restaurants have some of the highest death rates of COVID, which, because they were working through the pandemic yeah. in unsafe conditions. Um, so I think that's gonna have a deleterious effect on our restaurant culture. Uh, and often, I don't know if everybody knows this, but most kitchens of restaurants of any size, including high-end restaurants in the United States are run by immigrants from Central America and Mexico. Oh yes which Anthony Bourdain, um, who I love, and I'm very sad that it's not around anymore. Um, Anthony Bourdain has spoken at length about that. I 
if anybody hasn't checked out his commentary on that, I recommend that they look that up. Um, so I think that's going to have a huge effect. I think the people who were able to stay home, something that I've kind of noticed um, just from being on social media and reading articles about it, people are less willing to make work uh, their entire existence. And I think that plays a role in our so-called labor shortage that we have right now, which is really only a labor shortage in low-wage service industry jobs. Yes. A lot of people got out of, of those jobs um, because it just wasn't worth it. So the incident alternative was given to them, um, you know, and I think also people saw themselves as they realized how disposable they were to a lot of, of restaurants. So um, restaurants shut down, they laid everybody off, you know, no assistance of any kind. So they have to go on unemployment and they're like, hey, you know what? I'm gonna leave this industry because it doesn't treat me well. So I think we're gonna see an increase in restaurant prices, <laughs> food prices in restaurants, because, you know, we've, our, most of our eating out has been subsidized by the labor of low wage workers which we don't really think about it in those terms, but that's basically what's happening. And I think for home cooking, I don't know how much scratch cooking is going to stay around once people really start to go back to work full time. Um, maybe you learn, people learn some new skills when she'll stick around, which is great. Um, I hope that happens. But cooking from scratch takes time and skill. And so maybe now that people have more skills, they'll do it more often. But it also takes time and when you are working full-time and maybe you have kids and you've got all these extracurricular activities and it's it's not easy i think there's this perception among the food industry not the industry the food like our food culture our foodie culture maybe i should say that scratch cooking is easy and fun and everybody should do it and i'm like well if you are very skilled and practiced it can be easy. And if you know to select recipes that aren't going to dirty a million dishes and take three hours, it can be fun and easy. <laughs> but if you don't have those skills, it's difficult. It's really difficult. And I think a lot of people don't admit that. And so I, although I love cooking from scratch, I don't cook from scratch every night. I eat a lot of leftovers. I repurpose a lot of leftovers. I use shortcuts, like I buy the pre-shredded bag of carrots. I buy, you know, the pre-washed box of baby spinach and I don't make my own bread. Like sometimes I do. I partially, I don't make my own bread because it's so delicious that I eat like a whole loaf a day and that would be really bad for me my too. health. Me too. So <laughs> definitely like you understand why people ate so much bread in the past because it was freaking delicious. Um, but I have, I'm not wealthy by any stand, but I am a two income household with no children. And I don't make a ton of money, but between the two of us, my husband and I are fairly comfortable and I can afford to buy foods that are both healthy and convenient. Yeah. And I have access to this food because I have nine grocery stores by my house, right? Like I have infinite access to food if I want it and can afford it. And that is not the case for everybody. And so you know, I, part of the reason why I study history and food history, um, food history in particular, and I collect all these historic cookbooks is because I'm always interested in 
you know, what's a new way that I can use cabbage? <laughs> or, you know, what's an, uh, some interesting salad recipe that maybe I haven't thought of before that doesn't take 75 expensive ingredients that I don't have already? You know, I think in the food world, there's a, such an emphasis on uniqueness and authenticity, which is another word I hate, because what is authenticity, right? Um, that I think it's beyond the reach of most households, not necessarily in terms of just money, although that's part of it too, but ingredients that people maybe don't have already in their households. And listen, I, I'm not saying people shouldn't try new things, they definitely should, but you know, if I look through a cookbook, and I have a very well-stocked pantry, if I look through a cookbook and it's a bunch of ingredients I don't have already, if it's like one or two, then yeah, maybe I'll try something else. I'll go to the grocery store and try out a new ingredient. But if it's like 10, I'm like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna cook this. Yeah. You know, it doesn't reflect how I normally cook. I might try it maybe, but then what if I don't like it and I'm gonna be stuck with all these ingredients that I don't like and I'm not gonna use, you know? So I think there has to be some more balance in, in our foodie culture between trying new things and learning new food ways, which I think is very important for people. Um, I'm always interested in trying something new and learning something new, but there's also the reality of you have to feed your family every day. <laughs> like you can't be, you can't be making, you know, two hour long recipes from seven different cookbooks every night. Yeah. You just can't. So I feel like there's not enough emphasis on how do you get food on the table that's nutritious and affordable and doesn't take a long time and that your family is actually going to eat? Yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot of kids and I try and give them a lot of authentic or different foods every once in a while. But God, you know, if I, if I get home late, I got to commute. You know, there is nights when honestly, it's chicken tenders and tater tots, you know, that's, that's what it's going to be because you know, I, I, on the weekend, I try and do homemade pizza, homemade Mexican food, but like, you know, during the week, it's going to be something simple, you know? And I think, you know, that's really going to be the biggest legacy of the pandemic is people are starting to realize more and more how important time is. Yeah. And, you know, when 600,000 people die in a year, um, it really makes you, well, maybe not everybody, but it made me kind of evaluate, you know, like, is this the life I want to live? Am I spending the time that I have the way I want to spend it? Am I spending enough time with my family? Am I spending enough time on my health? Am I spending enough time on my mental health? And I think those are the questions that a lot of people are asking themselves. And I hope it results in a sea change in our work habits. Americans are freaking workaholics compared to the rest yeah. of the world. Yeah. I hope it results in a sea change in, in, you know, access to medical and mental health services. Um, and I hope it, you know, there's a lot of romanticization of the past, right? We love to talk about how things were in great grandma's day. And it was so much oh, yeah. better in the past. And it's like, mm, really, it's not in a lot of ways. But I think one of the things that was better in the past is there was much more emphasis, particularly in the 19th and early 20th century, on family life 
and on rest. Um, I mean, obviously it depended on what you did for a living and whether or not you were, you know, like enslaved. Um, because if you were enslaved or working in a factory 16 hours a day, you didn't have rest or family time, right? So that wasn't true for everybody. But the fact that Americans don't get vacation, we don't get sick leave, you know, we don't spend time with our families, we don't go home for lunch, you know, those are all lessons from the past that I think we could we could stand to readopt. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. Okay, I have one last question for you, and I hope this is a fun one. <clears throat> if you could invite 10 people living or dead, famous or non-famous, to a dinner party, who would you invite and what would you serve? God, I have to pick 10? That's a lot. Up to 10. Um, it doesn't have to be that many, up to, but up to. I did think a lot about this. Um, actually, not a lot. I did think about this a little. Uh, so I, like, once my book is done, right, my next big project I think I want to do is um, researching more into cookbook history and particularly the oh, lives nice. of some of our more famous cookbook authors, particularly in the 19th century, like the 20th century, particularly mid to late 20th century, we got pretty well covered, but you know, the 19th century turn of the 20th century, there's not been as much study of published cookbook authors. Yeah. And a couple of the ones I've met in quotes in my studies, um, who I think I would really like to have dinner with, uh, are Lydia Maria Child, mm. who, who wrote The Frugal Housewife in the 1830s. She has this fascinating life where basically um, she is a proponent of Native American rights. She is an abolitionist and a proponent of um, Black American rights. And because of her beliefs, she basically gets, um, loses her job as the editor of one of the world's first uh, children's magazines, Juvenile Miscellany, and she sort of dies in obscurity and it's her cookbook is the thing that, that propels her, I think, into the, the future as this, this known person. So that, she's fascinating. Oh my God, um, yes. Maria Parloa, one of the most prolific and famous um, cookbook authors of the late 19th century, born an orphan, starts a cooking school and becomes this full-time cookbook author. She's super fascinating. Um, Mary Lincoln, so Mary Johnson Bailey Lincoln, not to be confused with Abraham Lincoln's wife, Mary right. Lincoln, um, who's the first principal at the Boston Cooking School, also an amazing cookbook author. Sarah Tyson Rohr, another late 19th century cookbook author, also friggin' prolific, um, never marries, dies destitute in the Great oh Depression. Super fascinating. I would want to have her over. Um, Melinda Russell, another uh, cookbook author, black cookbook author. Um, her work was rediscovered, I don't remember exactly by whom, but popularized by Tony Tipton Martin um, with uh, the Jemima Code. Uh, she had a fascinating life, uh, born free in the North, tried at age 19 to get to Liberia uh was robbed oh my god had to start cooking and doing laundry to support herself and then her husband dies she has a disabled son oh she escapes uh confederates in the civil war and goes to michigan and basically writes a cookbook in an effort to raise money to live on like fascinating all these fascinating women i just want to i just want to move all these 
Yeah, forget a book. This should be a great Netflix series. I would watch this bio these biographies. Oh my gosh, Netflix serial watching or listening, please. I would so much love to host that show. Yeah. Please, please let me host that show of I would watch it. women cookbook authors. The other one is Ida Bailey Allen, another super prolific cookbook author, um, invented homemaker radio. Oh, she yeah. wrote cookbooks from 1917 to 1973. Wow, that's a hell Amazing, of a Amazing, interesting woman. So, and like all these women have all these fascinating recipes that I would make. All these great ideas, especially Ida Bailey Allen. She, one of my favorite cookbooks of hers, The Money Saving Cookbook from 1943. Um, so it's basically published in the middle of the uh, World War II. And it's The Money Saving Cookbook, so it's like regular people food. But she thinks of stuff like put leftover macaroni and cheese in um, stuff leftover macaroni and cheese and tomatoes and bake it. I'm like, what? That's that sounds amazing. We should idea. do that. <laughs> you know, all these things that have been lost. People don't do that anymore. I don't think about all these great ideas that I always want to try out. So anyway, that's not 10, but I would totally um, have those ladies over for dinner. I have no idea what I would cook for them. I'd probably be super intimidated. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. We maybe just have snacks or something. <laughs> no, I would. That sounds like a hell of a like a hell of a conversation, though. What a wonderful group of people. I know who I would not invite, even though I think she's a fascinating um, figure. Is uh, Ellen Swallow Richards, who invented home economics, the term home economics. Anyway, she's kind of a snob, which is why oh. I would not invite her. Um, although she knew Maria Parloa. So maybe they would, maybe they would get along. I don't know. Anyway, but yeah, she, she hated the term domestic science because she associated with servants and she oh. was very against like cooking schools because they were largely for like, not like cooking schools in the 20th and 21st century cooking. They were cooking schools for like people who wanted to be housekeepers or open a catering oh, business gotcha. or a tea room or teach cooking classes. You know, um, and Alan Hall Richards was the first woman to go to MIT to study food chemistry because um, oh, wow. that's the only avenue that was open to her. Of course, she wanted to study chemistry academically, and they were like, "Yeah, you're a woman, so it's got to be food and laundry. That's how you have to apply your chemistry." Okay, I've heard of her recently. Yeah. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but she was like, "Oh well, we can't have, you know, that's domestic science. That's associated with domestics." Right, people who work in service. We don't want that. We don't want that. It has to be academic. So what do I call it? Home economics. So, I mean, maybe I would invite her just to see how the conversation went. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much. I've loved talking to you. I could talk to you all day. This is a great conversation. Thank you. As you can tell, I could talk about food history endlessly, endlessly, and it has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the first episode of the second season and I enjoy I hope you enjoyed our talk with Sarah Wasberg Johnson. It was a pleasure to talk to her. I could have talked to her all day and I hope she comes back in the future. Um, I would welcome to be able to talk to her again about any of the wonderful topics we discussed. Uh, next week we're going to have Heather Hardcastle. She is a proponent of um, gluten-free baking in the United States and She's going to be a wonderful guest. I can't wait to speak to her. And please uh, come back to our second episode of the second season. I look forward to talking with um, Heather, and I look forward to you listening to it. 
Have a wonderful day and keep cooking.